All right. We're going to begin Ephesians chapter 6. We are then going to go from this passage to 1 Peter chapter 4 and read a passage there as well. And so we'll begin reading Ephesians 6. So if you want to take and turn to 1 Peter 4 and put your finger there, we're going to be there here momentarily. So I'm already ready to go. We'll begin reading Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, reading through verse 20. And then we'll go to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll read on the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all, taking the shield of faith which, but with, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning verse 7, we read, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Every trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for the judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. As we looked last week in Acts, we found the role of government and our response to it. And probably a few of you were not uh, 
a little disturbed <laughs> to find out that with God, uh, the moment of judgment um, in this age is not when leadership opposes God's people and brings injury to them. He allows that, permits it. A day is coming when he will judge the nations for that, but that day is not while we are here. As we have studied on Sunday night, we have seen that uh, that call for God's judgment on the nations for that act, for the taking of the lives of the saints, is held off. It's, it's waiting. It's, it's reserved for that day. And we're going to see it come up in a few weeks when we press forward in Acts, or I mean, I'm sorry, in Revelation on Sunday nights. Um, when we get to Revelation chapter 8, we're going to see that then it's going to come to fruition and God's judgment is going to be uh, horribly placed upon those that have opposed God's people with violence. But for this season, we find that God permits it. That that was not the occasion that demanded Herod's destruction was the slaughter and the imprisonment of the apostles. But rather, you find that it was when he took glory to himself that belonged to God. When he received the worship of others, that that was, in God's economy, the last straw. That was too much. That was... Uh, not going to be permitted within his kingdom, within his, uh, among his people, that here in the land of Israel is an Israeli, Herod, uh, receiving worship from other Israelis, and that was not going to be allowed. And so Herod is struck dead. And in the midst of this, we somewhat skipped over Peter's imprisonment and the events around his release, and we want to go back and look at that now. What is our response? If God's response is to allow the world to bring violence against his people in this age, if that is permitted by God, in fact, his will, as we're going to see in Peter and in Ephesians and other passages this morning, if that is how God intends this age to be, then what is our response? What is the Christian's response? Uh, preparation and reaction and, and activity. What are we to be engaged in in this period, this, this time when we are recipients of God's grace, but we are, the, are also the recipients of the wrath of this age of wicked men? How do we respond? And we want to look at that this morning as we consider the events around both James's murder as well as Peter's imprisonment and release. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word before us. Your spirit within us and your people around us. And for this time that we can spend a short season meditating upon your word, led by your spirit, encouraged by your people. And Lord, we want to guard this time for your glory. We also want to guard it, Lord, in our thoughts, in our environment here, for we know that it is precious. 
This Lord, we commit it to you. We pray that you might work in us by your grace and mercy toward us. For we know that we are not really deserving of this, but you have made us and counted us worthy. And for this, we thank you and will not cease to give praise to your name. And Lord, for much of the content here before us in our passage is very alien to our experience. And so today we doubly need your help. And we thank you that you are willing to give it to all who ask. And Lord, we pray you might work now in our hearts and our minds to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, to fill up his sufferings in our lives until that day where we'll be like you fully in our experience as we are positionally today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to an exciting passage, and we all like to relate it because it's kind of funny, to tell you the truth. If you read through it as a simple narrative, um, it's, it's something you would like to watch um, on television, frankly. We would love to sit there and be a fly on the wall and watch it all happen. Um, but these were very serious times for the church, and, and we need to realize that, that this was a very real threat um, this is more than a threat. This was uh, real violence being perpetrated against God's people. And uh, while we know the conclusion of the occurrence here, uh, we know that that does not preclude the anxiety that it could easily create among God's people uh, given those circumstances. That if you were in this place where one of your leaders had just been murdered by the sword, the other has been placed in prison and his execution has already been scheduled. Um, you would not consider this a, a fun occasion, but rather a very serious one. And this is how we need to approach the passage. Yes, it's kind of funny that when Peter is released and goes and knocks on the door and poor Rhoda gets so excited that she runs in and doesn't even open the door for him. And, and we smile at that, and we see how the church responds. They say, well, it can't be Peter. It must be his ghost. They must have moved up the execution on us, and uh, you're just, it must be his ghost. And we, we smile at that a little bit. But uh, these are not seasons that if we had lived in there, that there would be any humor going on. Uh, this was a, a serious time where the church recognized that while they had survived the religious uh, Opposition uh, outside of Stephen and a few others, they had uh, that that Saul uh, of Tarsus had had taken their lives. That now this was of a different nature. This was not the religious community opposing them. This was now the Roman government, the Roman Empire coming against them, and they recognized the seriousness and the and and they responded as they should. We find in verse 5 that Peter was kept in prison. The expectation was that he would be executed on Sunday, the day after Passover. They didn't want to do it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They didn't want to do it during that week. And so uh, that was already a mistake, what they did with Jesus. Um, but that was forced upon them, essentially. Uh, the purposes of God had to be fulfilled in that case. Um, but now they said, we're not going to do that again. 
we're going to wait till after the Passover. And so um, here that he is, uh, to us it would be a Saturday night, to the Jews it would be a Sunday morning, um, because their day starts at sunset. And so Sunday started um, Saturday night. The Passover was finished, and it was certainly time for uh, uh, an expectation that we're going to lose not only James by the sword, we're going to lose Peter by this uh, form of execution to come. And here he is in prison, and the church gathers together. And we don't know how long this has been going on, but the entire time it says he was kept in prison, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. That the church enveloped themselves in this uh, activity of prayer. Uh, and we recognize it, and we recognize that it, that it has an effect, that certainly within the, the plan of God, that, that God's plan for Peter was not finished, but that doesn't negate the responsibility of God's people to be involved in that process by which God executes his plan. That we are not going to sit back and say, whatever is God's will is God's will, and he's going to do it with or without you and I, and be unengaged. That is not how God functions. He has never uh, demonstrated that anywhere in his word, but that there is a, a symbiotic uh, work going on here that is God is ready and willing to do his part and to accomplish his purposes that coming alongside of and, and, and dovetailing into them is the work of, of his people that will worship him and serve him, be obedient to him, and to pray to him. And we find that in the midst of opposition, even when it gets this serious, in the midst of all of this, we don't find them running afraid. You don't find them uh, trembling before it. Um, but there's no evidence of that. We saw that with, with um, no, just Stephen. We don't find him trembling before that. He is seeing heaven. He is recognizing what's going on. He is ready for whatever happens. He's going to serve the Lord. He's going to speak the truth. And, and if that means he's going to be stoned to death, we don't find any fear confronting that. We found that the apostles, when they were beaten, counted, went out with joy, counting that they were counted worthy of suffering for the sake of Christ. Um, these, these people were, were willing to receive this kind of treatment. They were willing to, to be the brunt of that kind of hostility. Um, that's not what's going on here, but rather the church now is coming in uh, to agreement with God's purposes. They're seeking out His will. They are desiring for His uh, supernatural deliverance of this one individual. Not that everything would be at peace and that we would never have tribulation and trials. That simply is foreign to everything they have been taught and everything they will be taught. We will see throughout the rest of the book of Acts consistently that the people of God are taught this simple statement by Paul in Acts, you must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. This is a consistent theme. This is why in our Bible reading today, we read from a couple of different passages from a couple of different authors. Turn with you to, back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is about your Christian warfare, and I don't know how you can have warfare if you don't have an enemy. And somehow we've gotten it in our mind, because of our environment here in this culture, that there are no enemies. When we are 
surrounded and engulfed by them, um, and yet because of the subtleness of the enemy around us, we have grown so soft that we don't even recognize them as that. And here in Ephesians chapter 6, we have Paul declaring to us that, that we, we have to take a stand and that that's going to be costly, that there is an adversary. He talks about the wiles of the devil. He talks about principalities, powers, um, and evil that, that is even you know, in the heavenlies. That is not in heaven, but in the heavenlies that, that, that operate on a different scale than us, on a spiritual realm. We are confronted with that. That what is your response? Is it to go to God and say, this couldn't be happening. I deserve better. I have served you faithfully. Certainly I deserve better. How can you let this occur? This isn't fair. (laughs) Oh, Christians should never be coming to God with that kind of statement. Of all people, we know what's fair, don't we? We know what our sin really deserves, don't we? I mean, we are the recipients of the most unfair treatment on the planet. We really are. It is completely unfair that the Son of God should die and become my sin. That is not fair. But I am so glad he did that. And so when these thoughts and these ideas start to creep into our mind, they are not of God and they are not from the experience of God's Word and what they have trained us to. Rather, we are told that we are in a wrestling match. Verse 12 of Ephesians 6. We wrestle that we need to be armored because we have fiery darts being thrown at us from the devil. It says that we are in a war. And we must recognize ourselves that we are soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ, not that we are going out to destroy others. <laughs> I can say we are. We, our goal is to put to death their sin nature, to put to death sin in them, um, to crucify them spiritually, and yet they will live, let not them, but Christ will live in them, as Paul describes his experience. And so we find that we are involved in a war. It's no time for sleeping. It's no time for comfort. It's no time for laziness. It's, it's no time for being unprepared, for being unobservant. It's, there's no time for that. But we have lulled ourselves into a sleepiness in our Christian experience that we consider ourselves more of merchants than soldiers with goods to sell waiting for people to come to our storefront and browse. Come on, isn't that really what our churches are? Isn't that how we've set it up? We invite people to church. We don't tell them their sinners going to hell. Would you like to come to a Christmas service? Or we'll portray for you in a a song or in a drama the story of of Christ's birth and and we'll let you browse through and, and kind of, you know, pick up some of the items we have available and let you examine them, set them down and walk away. And no pressure here. No pressure sales here. None of that's going on, right? We essentially have set ourselves up not as soldiers, but as salesmen. We've set up our churches not as fortresses for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but as storefronts. 
We've set up displays in the, in the window casings to try to entice people in instead of just standing up for God's truth. And the end result is predictable. There is a lackness in our faith. There is a laxness in our preparation. And there is an expectation of ease, of comfort, of reward only and never suffering. One of the first things they do to train soldiers, especially the more highly trained you get, and that's fascinating, the the more highly trained you become, um, the more difficult scenarios they put you into and the more they make you suffer in training. You ever notice that? And when they get up to those levels, there's the Navy, and then there's the SEALs, right? We all know there's the Navy, and then there's the SEALs. There's the Army, and then there's the Rangers. And we all know what they're put through. Well, we don't, really. It's, but we know that it's hard. We've heard stories that a lot of them don't make it through. Many enter, and very few come out <laughs> with the credentials to say, I'm ready to fight. Endure anything, whatever, that, to just be oblivious to the pain. This is the condition of the church that God describes, a church that is ready to encounter opposition and to defend itself and to stand fast, to wrestle not as uh, weaklings, but as super conquerors, who bear uh, hyper conquerors. More than conquerors is how we do it in the English versions. Um, That this is God's expectation. He expects us to be armed. Armored, first of all. And we don't see a need to take up the armor of God because we don't see ourselves as soldiers anymore, but salesmen. We don't see this as the evil day. But we keep reminding ourselves in the age of grace, and that is true in terms of our experience and expectation from God's hand, but not from the world. These are the evil days. These are the days of great tribulation. These are those days. And it says in verse 13 of Ephesians 6, Take up the whole armor of God, you may be able to withstand the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Do we get the picture? And then he begins to list off what it requires of us. And it's that last element, really, that's in this list of the armor of God that we're going to focus on this morning. And as in verse 18, that along with all the other things that we are to take, that we are to use in terms of having on us, um, and that's kind of interesting that, that the verbiage here is, is that you have this, you have this, you have this, you take this, you take this. But then when we get to this last element, there is no helper verb here. It's straight out praying. I'm not relating this to any of your armorage. I am telling you this is the activity. 
You're going to take the helmet of salvation. That's something you're going to bring into your possession. You're going to bring the sword of the Spirit that's going to bring into your possession. You're going to already have these other things of righteousness, of the feet shall, the preparation of the gospel of truth, or of the gospel of peace. You're going to have your, your, your belt of truth. You're going to have those things. You're going to be putting those things on you. But when it comes to the active, outward verbiage, we finally get to this action verb of praying. This isn't something you're putting on, there's something you're putting out. Of all the Christian activity, what we're putting out uh, that is critical in this warfare that we are involved in, as soldiers of the cross, they were putting out prayers. Praying, it says, how often? Always, with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit. Being watchful. Part of watchfulness is prayerfulness. To this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is written not by someone in an ivory tower that is trying to explain the Christian life to um, you lay people. This is a guy sitting in a Roman prison explaining what it means to fight the fight of faith for Jesus Christ. This is a guy who isn't just talking about it, he is actively living it, and he recognizes that in his condition of fighting that fight, which in this occasion happens to be in a Roman prison, he requires one thing from the watchful, steadfast, armored saints, and it's their prayers. Keep praying. I mean, look at, look at the description. I mean, it just goes on and on and on uh, with one powerful Greek word after another in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplications. In case you were confused between praying and supplicating. Being watchful with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Do you get the picture? Be active warriors for the kingdom of God, and to be an active warrior is going to put you into this position, and it is a prayerful one. This is how we fight the fight. This is how you oppose a government that has gone rogue against the church and is slaughtering your leadership and is getting, has imprisoned them and, and can't wait. To, and just, oh, you can just imagine Herod all night. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to take out Peter. All those Jews are going to love me. This is going to be great. What do you do with leaders like that? Well, we've got to vote the bums out, right? Good luck. It doesn't work. Because as soon as you vote them out, it creates a weird vacuum that immediately there's more bums to just fill it. The more antagonistic, the more opposition we receive, does not call us to more political activism. Well, it does, sort of, because the greatest political activism you can have is to fall on your knees in prayer. Pray. And so the church starts praying for Peter, which takes us immediately to 1 Peter, to think about, what, what does Peter think about this kind of scenario? He sets it right up. He says, okay, when things are getting bad and it comes down to the very end, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. When you're at the end of your rope, 
I don't know why you wait that long, but we all do. Don't we? We'll try every other mechanism but prayer. And then we get down to the very little knot at the end of the rope and we're dangling by it by one hand. Oh, I should probably pray. The end of all things is here. What you therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers? And Peter recognized there are several kinds of praying. And it's time for serious, watchful prayer and not silly praying. The Bible describes silly praying as repetitious praying. The silly praying is that which is without faith. Silly praying is that which is selfish, self-oriented. Serious praying is about a warfare, and it's for all the saints. And it's supplicative. That is, it's, 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 it's desiring to do it on benefit of another. It is pouring oneself out. We have examples of that throughout Scripture. I like Paul's example where he says, I, just, I, I would that all Israel be saved, and I'd be willing to trade my salvation to make it happen. That's some powerful praying there, people. Most of our praying is very self-oriented. And it's not serious. It's not watchful. No surprise that Peter, when he gets down to verse 12, says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Here's another gentleman that has been through it all. He has been beaten. He has been imprisoned. He has gone through it all. And is saying, that's not strange. That's the norm. It's not odd. Don't think that that's unusual. You know what is unusual? You know what is odd and strange? Is your Christian experience. Your Christian experience is the strangest thing um, there that exists. The fact that you can be a child of God and function as freely as you function in this society. That's strange. Because I'm pretty sure Jesus says that if they hated me, they're going to hate you that we are, should be, the most powerful, most hated, countercultural element in the world. If we radically lived out this kind of statement that says, um, didn't he say earlier, um, have fervent love for one another and minister one to another? That's radical stuff, by the way. We really live that out. He says, listen, rejoice that you partake of Christ's sufferings because the day is coming. So when you are reproached for the name of Christ, you're blessed. <laughs> Great stuff. Next time when they curse at you, do they ever? For saying that you're a Christian? Say, well, thank you for that. Rejoice in it. We have very little experience with this. 
with this kind of antagonism, with this kind of opposition. But the early church, they were accustomed to it, or were growing accustomed to it. And here we find that certainly uh, during Saul's uh, opposition, where his persecution that broke out, that they were scattered abroad, um, there certainly they were going to take measures for safety. But in this situation where the outcome was just inevitable, it seemed, they come to prayer and they're going to be confident, they're going to be serious about it, they're going to be engaged in it, house to house. And this is what is critical, I think, when we see this. This isn't just one house praying with one young lady that gets excited and doesn't open a door. Because Peter, when he went in and said, I'm, I'm free, I'm, I'm out, here's what happened, they're all excited, he says, oh, I have to go now. Why? Because there's other houses of people praying right now. The church was divided up and there wasn't just one house where there was some a handful of people praying. The entire church was divided up amongst the Jerusalem housing church prayer meetings. Constant in it. Serious in it. We can't fill up one living room with a prayer meeting. Because we're not serious. Because we're not, we're, we're salesmen and not soldiers. This is not the church at its height of thousands, for many had been scattered abroad. But yet, they were filling up homes. And he says, I need to go to another place. I need to let the rest know. And and I can't get to them all, he says. This is great. In verse 17 of, of Acts, I'm back in Acts chapter 12, um, verse 17, it says, But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, and declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. He says, I can't get to them all by myself, so you guys go to James and you tell him what happened. I'm going to head over here to these other places, tell them what happened, and we've got to get the word out that God has answered our prayers. And what we learn from this is that when the church goes into this kind of a prayer mode, that it is the universal experience that they're all engaged. And they recognize its necessity in fighting this warfare that we be alert. A church without prayer is asleep. Those are the two options. You are either in prayerfulness or you are asleep. In this war that we're in, in this engagement, in the battle, that's the two conditions of the soldiers. Either you are alert, which is equated with prayer, or you are asleep. And I don't know about you, but I would rather come across the enemy asleep than alert. Yes? And that's how the enemy is finding us. Asleep, not alert. For if we are alert, and we are recognizing what's really going on around us, and just how far we are sliding into the muck of darkness as the people of God, quote-unquote, we would be startled into alertness, and that would be evident in our praying. The prayer would not be an occasional thing, but it would be a constant thing. The prayer would not be a, a, a rarity, but, but the lack of it would be 
A prayer is more than just silly repetitious things. The last discovery that we have here, not only that the church was under assault, they responded as they should respond. By being alert, by standing fast. And that meant that they prayed. And they prayed not just because of necessity, they prayed fully armed. This was the culminating aspect of their walk with God. That is, that they have the armor. And I fear that much of our praying is ineffectual because we are praying naked. We have not put on. We have not taken hold of. We have not uh, shod ourselves, belted ourselves. Uh, we, we have not uh, helmeted our... We, 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 are, we are bare. And so we could jump up and pray, but it's ineffectual. Why? Because in an unarmed condition, you're the first casualty. Yes? You're the easy mark. Satan can wipe you out with one dart. The church was ready for prayer. They had been trained. They had been built up. They had been strengthened in their faith. They had been purified. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? That's purifying work right there. You lie, you drop dead. I think I'm going to have a different attitude in church. They had been through some battles. These were seasoned Warriors for Christ. And so you find them in the seasoned activity of the warrior of Christ, and that is alertness, which equals prayerfulness. And God responds. Isn't that great? God responds. While they're in prayer... Peter is under intense guard. God responds by sending a messenger, the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. Penetrates it with light first. Peter's not praying, nor is he anxious. What's Peter doing? Um, apparently, he's asleep. Peter's content. The idea that these guys were all trembling at this is really foreign. They were content. I've served God, and if this is the end, praise God. I'm going to fill up the sufferings of Christ. And, and we find this attitude in Peter all the way through to the end, and, and Paul and others. It, it, to be absent from the body, the presence of the Lord. That's my expectation. I, I look forward to that part. But while I'm still in the body, then I still have a purpose. And so Peter's at rest. The church is active, not in a fearful way, but in a, in a soldierly way. They are alert, and an alert, active, standing army is a praying army in the kingdom of God. This is the evidence of their alertness. Not 
that they were at their end of their rope, not that this was at a time that they had no recourse and if Peter died, the whole church was dissolved. That wasn't the condition. That wasn't in the mix here. This was an alert church. This is a church that was standing, that was wrestling, that was, that was armored, that was ready, and that meant that they were going to be in prayer. But that's how we respond to the onslaught of the enemy is that we are on our knees. And the angel responds, Peter's at rest. And so he has to hit Peter on the side. Hey, dude. Get up. The bright light didn't rouse him. The angel has to hit him. I mean, this is a light from heaven showing up in the room. And it doesn't startle him. It doesn't wake him. It doesn't get him to rise up. And so far, okay, bam. You wonder how long the angel waited. Look down. What is this guy's problem? He won't wake up. Boom! Arise quickly! Let's go! And like I said, a lot of this is pretty humorous from our perspective. But it's powerful in the context. And again, Peter doesn't think he's being delivered. He thinks there must be some spiritual message going on here. He's just having a vision. So even as he's told, and I think it's great that God just says, okay, I'm responding to their prayers. Now, here's my response. I have a series, first of all, I'm going to hit you upside. Here's my response. I have a series of commands for you. That's God's answer to my prayers. A series of commands? Exactly. God's response to alertness, being armored, being ready, being engaged, and standing fast, is to give it a series of commands. Arise. Get dressed. Put on your shoes. We're leaving. That's after he smacks you up the side of the head. That's God's answer to your prayers. You see, in our understanding of God's answer to prayer, it means that there's going to be this, this, you know, very ornate pillow coming down from heaven upon which, probably carried by an angel, upon which everything we just asked for is on there that we can gently take off and bring into our life. That's God's answer to our prayers. It's not a smack on the side and a series of commands. Is that what you expect when you're praying? Because that's what happened here. God's response to his soldiers being alert is to give them orders. I think that's what commanding officers do when they have an alert army. When they have a sleeping army, what can you do? You're dead. Sleeping naked army, you're dead. I can give you orders, but you're just going to line up as fodder for the cannons. For the weapons of the enemy. But an alert, armored army is ready to receive commands. And this is God's response. You prayed, I'll show up, hit him on the side of the head, get him motivated a little bit. 
Tell him a series of commands. Arise, gird yourself, tie on your sandals, put on your garment, follow me. That's one, two, three, four, five commands. After being smacked. That's how God answers prayer. Brace yourself next time you go to prayer. Because if it's really alert praying of an armored, mature soldier of the cross that says that's supplicative, that's that's constant, that's serious, with that kind of praying, prepare yourself because God's probably going to show up and smack you and give you a series of commands. Five of them here. Get up quickly. Gird yourself. Put your sandals on. Put your robe on. Follow me. Let's go. In the midst of all of this commands, um, there's enablement. And so God doesn't command us to do things that we're not capable of doing. And so as soon as God gives the command through the angel, get up quickly, what happens? Peter is enabled. How? His shackles fall off. God does not command us to do what we are incapable of doing. And when you say to God, I can't, what you're really saying is you're not God, and you're not good, and you won't take care and provide. You've given me a command I can't keep. And what you're saying to your commanding officer is I won't, not that I can't. And so, where there's command, there's provision, and there's already, the clothing is already there, and so the only thing stopping him with the chains, they fall off, boom, they're gone. Follow me, what's in the way? Well, you've got guards everywhere. You've got one on each side of him, you've got two outside the door, and you've got eight, let's see, 12, 12 more out there, taking shifts of eating and sleeping. You've got gates that are locked. God's going to break those open and walk right through them. We're going to see, whew, God will provide. You must obey. Oh, Peter had every reason to sit there and look at the angel says, um, I've got shackles. See these guys? See that door? Um, I don't see any reason to put my shoes on, dude. Right? That's how we respond. I don't see any reason to get shod. I don't see any reason to get gird with the truth. I don't see any reason to put on this breastplate. I don't see the point of picking up that shield. I don't see the purpose of shodding my feet with the preparation of the gospel peace. There's just too much pulling against me. There's too much to brook here. There's too many... Soldiers of the enemy. But God, in his giving to us of commands, gives us the provision to keep those. Peter responds with obedience. Even though he didn't fully understand what was happening, and this is critical, you don't have to understand or even completely (laughs) believe what God's doing in your life. You just have to obey it. Obedience 
and maybe the finest obedience is the obedience that even if you don't understand there are times that I instructed my children to do certain things and they could sit there and complain or disobey or ignore um, but I had my reasons and they found out after they obeyed what those reasons were We were on a retreat once, and I watched up at charity. I watched a, a father say, "Son, get up and come here." <laughs> Kid got up, came over. Dad went and got a shovel and killed the snake behind him. You don't have to understand why I want you to come. You just have to do it. Fundamentally, obedience is really the exercise of faith in God. He's told me to do this, and Peter is walking. I mean, he's he got, okay, I'm up, I'm up. You know, almost like he's half asleep still. I'm up, this is a vision or something. Uh, okay, I'm going to get dressed, God, there I am, all right. Hi, angel. What do you got to tell me? Is this some kind of revelation before I die? Or Okay, follow. Okay, I'll follow you. Okay, we're going through the door. We're walking right out the prison. This is kind of interesting. I mean, he's all the way outside thinking that this isn't really happening. He has obeyed every single command the angel has given him without fully comprehending what God is doing. Isn't that amazing? That is spectacular obedience. To obey without full comprehension of all God's doing, but I'm going to obey because you're who you are and I am I am. You're the commanding officer. I'm the foot soldier. I'm going to obey. Without question, without delay, without excuse, without complaint. I'm going to obey. Pam. And then he gets outside. He's experienced all the benefits now because he has responded to God's answer to the church's prayers with a series of commands and he's responded with obedience and now he is the benefactor and he's standing outside in verse 11 and he came to it himself. He said in verse 11, he's finally like, wait a minute, I am outside and I'm awake and I don't know if he was, it would be in the spring, I don't know if it was windy or raining, I don't know. Something shook him and he's like, oh, hey, <laughs> This is good. On the other side of obedience, there's peace. There's deliverance on the other side of obedience. You see, we tend to come to God with this kind of deal. I'll obey you if you. If you do this for me, I'll obey you. This kind of, it doesn't work like that. Peace, deliverance, forgiveness, salvation is really on the other side of obedience. God says, if you trust, if you repent, I'll deliver you. I'll save you. If you obey, you'll have that reward. And here Peter is on the other side of obedience. He's done everything he's been told to do, which is the commands themselves are the answers to the church's prayers, getting hit up the side of the head or wherever the side, told to stand up, get dressed, follow him, He's on his way. And now he comes to himself and realizes the purposes of God on this. God meant for all of this for my deliverance. And brethren, I want you to know that God hasn't changed. 
his commands to you should never be viewed as grievous. Because they have an objective that is for your good. This is why 1 John says if you really love God, and if you really called of him, if you're really his child, you're going to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. It's not like, oh, I got to... Can you imagine Peter? Oh, I got I'm comfortable here. And he was. He was asleep. Even the bright light didn't wake him up. I'm comfortable. Okay, if I have to do that. You know, he says, yeah, get up. Oh, okay. That's easier. I'll get dressed. I'll follow you. Doesn't make sense to me, but I'm doing it. It's probably just a dream. You're probably imagining all this, Peter. Probably God's got some spiritual truth to teach you before you uh, go to your execution. But no, he came to himself and he says, Now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod. On the other side of obedience is the understanding of the working of God. I want you to know that. We want to understand everything and then I'll obey. God, if you can just explain exactly why I have to do all this, and if I determine that it is reasonable or just or whatever, then I'll obey. Whereas God turns it around and says, when you obey, then you'll come to this fullness of this understanding. Really, all you really need to understand to obey is that he is God and he's said it. He's the commanding officer. He's ordered it. How are you going to respond? On the other side of the command, because we know what kind of commander we have, we know his benevolence, we know his goodness, therefore we can stand on this side of it having obeyed and we can look back and say, well, that's what God wanted to do. Oh, of course, this is what he wants. Here's the benefit. The understanding is not necessary for obedience. It comes in, as a response to obedience. And then he wants to share it with everybody. The first house he comes to is Mary, mother of John, whose surname was Mark, not John and James's mom, but John Mark's mother, the author of Mark, Gospel, who also was the, going to be picked up by Barnabas and Paul and taken on a uh, first missionary journey. That John. They were together, together praying. And we find the event of the encounter with Rhoda and we find the church taken aback by the power of God's response to their praying. But I want you to recognize that this event was dependent upon Peter's obedience. And I've sought to teach consistently that our relationship with God is a relationship. <laughs> it's not one way. And it is not one-handed. It is, like any relationship, a response. He initiates it. We respond. 
he initiates further. We respond. He responds to that response and, and just builds and builds and builds. And, and we see throughout here this interaction between God and his people that, yes, he's going to let the world do this. He's told us that, that there's going to be opposition. Be ready for it. Be alert. Be armored. Be, be engaged. Be in prayer. And as we are, he will respond, whether by strengthening us to stand even as we are slaughtered like James, or deliver us as he has with Peter, either one. I think James came out on the better end of the deal, actually, to tell you the truth. If you ask James, I think. We find that God is at work, and with Peter's obedience, the church now is blessed with this wonderful message, this is what happened. And you need to not keep that to yourself, but share it to others. But again, it comes down to, as they were obedient, as soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ, engaged in the activity that we are called to, which is fundamentally about praying, with all the rest being girded on us and being held by us, you know, the shield of faith, the Word of God, that we have all of those in our possession, but the activity that we are engaged in, in, in as alertness is prayer, that now comes obedience. And then we see that the obedience was really God's answer. He answered our prayer by giving us a series of commands that led us to deliverance. And this is true of salvation, it's true of the Christian walk. And the rejoicing starts house to house to house to house. Except in one house in the morning. And that's Herod's. What happened here? Searches for him, can't find him, puts the guards to death. While there's joy and celebration and life in the homes of the praying saints, there is confusion, anger, and violence in the house of the enemies of God. And that holds true today, or should. And finally, Herod gives up and heads out of town. The account is a familiar one, but the principles that are there are lost to us experientially. We have not experienced this kind of opposition. We have largely fallen asleep as a church, universal church here in, in this country and in the Western countries combined. And we are largely naked in our soldiering, unarmored. And frankly, when we get commands, we disobey them. And then we wonder, where's God? The expectation is, is that we are going to respond. We are going to take the armor that God has provided us that we are going to make it our possession, that we are going to engage in the alertness that he calls us to call prayer, that when he responds to that, 
He's going to do so generally by either rebuking us or giving us a series of commands. And again, if you want the fulfillment of God's blessing, it requires you to, to obey those commands. Then comes the joy. Then comes the fullness and the excitement. Even in the little bit of confusion over whether it's a real person or just a ghost. This model is still true today. And it's a challenge to us. That if these are not our experiences to investigate, why? For throughout church history, we've seen this consistently play out. So I call you today to examine, are you a soldier of the cross or a salesman of spiritual wares? Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and thank you for this description of your working in the early church and this event. Lord, we see the principles at play here and we know that they're in line with the teaching of your word in the epistles and other places. And Lord, we um, again come before you humbly realizing that we are disadvantaged. Because the opposition is subtle and has lulled us to sleep thinking that we do not need to be armored and alert. Lord, forgive us. You've even warned us in your word of this kind of opposition that we face here in this land. And so, Lord, um, your word has slapped us beside that body, has abruptly awoken us. And now we wait for your commands. And Lord, we don't really comprehend what that might include or your final purposes in these evil days. Lord, we trust in you to deliver, to guard, to strengthen. Lord, we look forward to that day. We'll be in your presence. Until then, we recognize that this is a place of evil, even as it is a place for the people of your, uh, they've experienced your grace and have that message to share with others. Live and move and minister. So, Lord, we thank you for your Spirit's presence to give us the discernment to guide us through. Lord, help us to be sensitive to his direction in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.